greetings and welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby and this is the jam-packed episode 39 of Eastern Promise, the podcast that explores the full potential of the East of England. Why jam-packed? Well, legendary agri-futurist Clark Willis MBE takes us on an audio tour of the Food Enterprise Park at Honningham near Norwich, where we'll be learning about its huge importance to the agri-food sector. I'll also bring you the first of three roundtables recorded on board the 1127 Norwich to Cambridge train and featuring speakers from Greater Anglia, Transport East and Breckland Council. And finally, looking forward to a night on the town this weekend. Before you go, check the fabulous suggestions on offer in this week's Crowd Sorcery. The UK's agricultural food and supply chain is worth a staggering £110 billion. The UK's highest research and development of agri-food technologies can be found in the east of England. And this region has the highest farming productivity by capital consumption and by land in the UK. Food, glorious food. The development of this rapidly growing sector and its support networks of agritech, agriculture, biotechnology and biological sciences can best be seen at Honningham just outside Norwich. Here, the Food Enterprise Park is steadily taking shape and Clark Willis MBE invited me to come and see how the park is progressing. It's a beautiful May morning. Up the gentle incline is the Food Enterprise Park, the focus of our visit here today. It's really exciting to be able to give you an audio peek into this really exciting development for Norfolk and for the east of England. We're here with Clark Willis, MBE. Clark, we are surrounded by furious activity, diggers, concrete, metal coming out of the ground. What's, what's the purpose of this? Mike, Mike, what's the main story at the moment? Power, electricity. It certainly is. And uh, although we talk about electricity, what we've got in this side of Norwich is actually a dearth of it. Mm -hmm. So we have now decided that uh, we need more power for the Food Enterprise Park and for other developments this side of Eastern. So we are now building a connection to that pylon you see there, which is actually on Eastern College land, only 100 metres yeah. from where we are. And we're going to run uh, cables down from that into the ground. Yep. It's what's called a 132 connection. And what you see in front of you, which is a massive substation, people it talk about is. little substation. This is a massive substation, which will bring the power from that, from, from that pylon in uh, and, and distribute it into the FEP. Meanwhile, about half a mile from here, the other side of Honningham Thorpe, there is planning in for 100 acres of solar. 
Excellent. And the most important thing is these uh, cables that you can see on this pylon bring the power from Sheringham Shoal ashore. Yes. So what we've got is wind power coming through there, solar power coming from the field. So the Food Enterprise Park probably is one of the, the foremost in terms of enterprise parks in the region that will be using uh, renewable power to power all the activities on this 100-acre site. That is amazing, and that's such good news for the region. Even the diggers got a windmill painted on the side of it. It's so fantastic that we're taking advantage of those renewable forms of energy, which is exactly where we should be, and there's no reason why we can't be doing that. We can see all sorts of really technical-looking uh, electrical gubbins already, already taking shape in, in the pieces of concrete that are already down there. So our, our contractors, our main contractors are over mill, Mm -hmm. Our electrical contractors who, who have overseen the whole is uh, solutions, both have done a superb job. This only a few months ago was a, 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 a total empty site. Yeah. And you can see the work that's gone in. The preforming of these concrete areas are really important because they will hold the generation, the transformers to actually take this power ahead. So this site will be adopted by UK Power Networks yeah. and our, our partner at what's called an IDNO, which is Vattenfall. Right. And all the switch gear we're on here, because actually what we've got on the Food Enterprise Park is relatively unique in that we've just got one connection to the grid, Yeah. 30 meg of grid power, 30 meg of solar, uh, one connection, because we then run a private network. Yeah. which means that we can take the solar and sell it to those that are on the site here. Oh, wow, that's, that's such joined-up thinking, and it's, it really is a, a delight to hear that. And, um, I mean, on a day like this, the, the solar itself will be producing an amazing amount. I mean, I know just from our own roof, the, the amount we can make on a, a, a day like this. But are you... Are you is any of that going back into the grid or is that all for your, your own? No, so this connection that we've got here, this 132 connection with UK Power Networks has got an export port capacity as well. Excellent. So, mm -hmm. so we will be, be spilling what we can't use, but, but actually technology is moving on in such a pace now that actually batteries yes. are going to be the next element so that we actually capture that sun rays in terms of its its uh, uh, solar, and use it during the uh, during the night. Yeah. And as we go onto the food enterprise part, you'll see some of the sites that we've got there. Uh, these are relatively large power users, but but actually the most important thing is the power is going to be renewables. And we all know that that electric vehicles and electric power is going to be the thing of the future. This is future proofing the food enterprise park for the next generation. Future-proofing, that is a key word, and that's so important. And it's, it's going to really hand the East of England, I think, a, a fantastic advantage in addressing some of the key questions that the Food Enterprise Park is, 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 is going to be addressing. So we're here now on the Food Enterprise Park proper with Clark Willis, and we're looking at the plant that belongs to Condimentum. Tell us about Condimentum, Clark, because they're, they're, they're really sort of running with a, with a fantastic Norfolk legacy, aren't they? Uh, ab absolutely. Um, and, and Condimentum were our first sale on site. They're on a three-acre plot. Everyone thinks that Coleman's have moved out of Norwich. Mm. They haven't. No. 
they are here and in fact a unique business in a lot of ways and a really good story. So the growers of mint and mustard had their own associations, a mint growers association, a mustard growers association, working with Coleman's over the decades, hundreds of years, as, as, as you well know. Yeah. And uh, they, they, back in 2017, formed a company called Condimentum Limited. And as Coleman's were moving out, they worked with Unilever to develop a, a plant that you see here, which is a new next generation plant for the dry, super fine mustard flour that we know as Coleman's. Yeah. And the mint, Coleman's mint. And the growers got together, they owned the company. They had a lot of support from, from Coleman's in terms of the processors. But these guys are really switched on now because they are actually taking mint and mustard to the next level. They've got a long-term contract to supply Coleman's. So the famous yellow tins of yes. Coleman's mustard are actually packed in that building there. And what you see in front of you is, is, is the milling tower, 20 uh, meter high milling tower, only one of three in the world. It's fantastic that, that that's still here and people I think will be really pleased to know that that's still continuing here. So we're here in the middle of, uh, of May and, and actually next week is the start of the mint harvest. Really? There are four growers of mint here in Norfolk and this is strategically placed because they're brought in with that famous Coleman's trailer right. that people will see on the road. Yes. That actually comes into here and the mint processing is in the far end of the building here. Okay. Where the mint is actually taken, it's washed, uh, and then it's uh, cooked, and actually it goes into 1,000 litre IBUs to go to Burton-on-Trent, to the Unilever uh, packing station there, where it's put into the famous little jars of Coleman's mustard. Okay. But I think the most important thing to say about this is actually it's, an, a, it's a really good example of what we're trying to do on the park. Yes. So the background to this, this, this uh, whole area here is, is a, uh, a designation by Liz Truss when she was Secretary of State back in 2015 to, of the, what's called the Greater Norwich Food Enterprise Zone. Yes. It includes the showground. Our neighbours across there are Eastern mm -hmm. College and, and, and ourselves. We've got 100 acres here of what was a greenfield site. So if we roll the clock back till 2018, there was nothing on this That's site right, whatsoever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I now understand what sunk costs are. Yes. This was a vision, this whole park was the vision of Ian Alston. Yes, The owner was. of Honningham Thorpe. So Ian, James and myself are directors of the Food Enterprise Park. And it's great from my point of view, having retired from Anglia Farmers, to get involved in a project such as this. Because what this is about is adding value to what comes off farmers' Absolutely. Fields. So important. And that is the key element that we are currently missing in this part of the world. Mm. We, we, we produce nearly 10% of the UK's primary products at a farm gate level in Norfolk. Mm. And, and take Suffolk, it's, it's, it's higher than that. What we are not very good at is adding value to that throughout the food chain. Yes, absolutely. The numbers are stark. 
It used to be said that a pound at farm gate was worth five pounds at first stage processing and 10 pounds when you would buy it in a retailer. Yeah. The reality is it's more like a pound is worth eight pounds at first stage processing. That's the added value that's coming of taking mustard that's grown in the fields of Cambridgeshire and Norfolk and adding value to it through a process like this. Yes. And then up to 15, 20% when it actually is on a supermarket shelf. So if you look at that whole food supply chain, the output from farms, six and a half billion pounds, something like that, 6.5 billion. Actually, the whole food supply chain is worth nearly 140 billion pounds. Wow. And if we could add value to even half what we produce in Norfolk, that would be worth two billion pounds a year in added value to this part of the country. And that is the vision that you see here. To see it actually taking shape is amazing. And you're so right to say that there's so much, you know, we're exporting so much of that added value when we could be making it right here in the east of England. I think it's important to say that, that, that what we've got on site here is, is a, virtually a 50-50 split. So there's 50 acres along a line here that actually is in Broadland District Council. Yeah. And the other 50 is in South Norfolk District Council. Yes. That made it very difficult when we'd got the food enterprise zone status to actually um, uh, bring forward what's called a local development order. Yes. So Broadland District Council uh, did a superb job in bringing forward a, 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 an order that basically gives us planning permission uh, with, with restrictions in terms of noise, uh, height, uh, and design, and, and also a park feel. This isn't an industrial estate. You see a lot of trees around, a you, lot of you grass. You do, yeah. And that's important because th this is an enterprise park for us to take food that's produced uh, in, 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 in Norfolk and add value to it. Yeah. And, and at the... At the uh, Condimentum was the first on site. There are, have been a number of other plot sales since. And what we've got in development at the moment are, are I guess, two really interesting projects. Uh, one is the Food Innovation Centre. Yeah. So, so we, we had thought for a long time, you imagine Coleman starting up in business as they did nearly 200 years ago the innovation that went in to producing what is a brand now. Yeah. And we need to actually put a, a, a foundation in place so that lots of lots of, of entrepreneurs who are innovating have got the facilities uh, and the support to actually bring product, new products to market. The whole food and drink market is changing. I don't need to tell you that. No, you don't. Uh, the, the, the supermarket shelves look completely different to <laughs> when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. If you look at the ready meals, the added value, the plant-based foods, yeah. the more thought about healthy and nutritional eating, uh, and, and, and that means that we've, we need to have a place that they, those businesses can grow and thrive. So the Food Innovation Centre has been built by Broadland District Council with a lot of support from New Anglia LEP. Mm -hmm. 
uh, who, who have been, again, very supportive in terms of what we're doing here. Excellent, yeah. What there is is 13 food-grade units which are available to rent. So those people that currently are working in a shed or even in their kitchen starting to conceive and develop new food and drink products will be able to go to a location where basically all of the um, uh, all, all of the support network is there. There's test kitchens. Um, there is an innovation program that is being run by Hethel. Yes. Uh, and and uh, together with support from UEA that's building a food and drink cluster, uh, what we're doing is creating a community for innovation development of food and drink here in, in, in Norfolk. And, and that to me is really, really important. It's absolutely critical. You, you think of startups and scale, I mean, you think particularly in innovation centres, you think particularly in the tech space. But that's, I mean, a, a digital technology, but that's so, you know, that's, that's, that's quite reductive thinking when you think about all, all, the, all the developments we're going to need as um, our traditional sources of food get impacted by, well, the war in Ukraine is now, what, in its fourth, fourth month, and that's impacting wheat prices and the changes of the way we're going to be consuming meat. That's so important to be able to sort of get people who have got a good idea, give them the space and the opportunity to run with that and, and maybe make a real difference and bring down the cost of food. Yes, but it's, it's adding value to what we've got. I think the relationship, in terms of our location here, if you think about it, only a few miles round the A47, we've got the Norwich Research Park. Absolutely. Absolutely incredible operation in terms of the science base there for plant, nutrition, healthy eating. And, and the working together that we're doing to actually bring products forward to look at, 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 at our diet, our nutrition, what, what, we, what we're eating, what we're drinking, is, is actually really important. And, and that connectivity, is, is, this is one part of that. So these units will, will basically be used by food and drink businesses uh, looking to innovate, develop, uh, supply retail markets, which are important, and also create scale and, and then be, on to be able to move to larger units here on, on the Food Enterprise Park that they actually can get to the next level and the next level. And what we need is the condimentums of the future yeah. that actually emerge from, uh, from that Food Innovation Centre. It, it opens in August of this year. Uh, ready to go. There's a lot of interest in it. There is, uh, and well, massive, there should be. Massive development, uh, and that will, will, I guess, give a vision to those um, that, that are thinking about coming into this industry. Because actually, sometimes we think this industry is about agriculture and farming. It isn't. The, no. the, the food supply chain is massive, if you look at it. Uh, and, and we joke that you need a doctor probably once, twice a year, but you actually need a farmer and you need that food chain three or four times. You've, you've just had a cup of coffee. Yeah, absolutely. Think yeah. of the process that goes in to you produce having a cup of coffee with some milk in it. Yeah. Right? That, that, that is a whole chain that, 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 that there's a lot of people involved in, and we're seeing the challenge of food chains right now globally. Yeah. With, with the war that's happening in Ukraine and, and the effect that that's having 
And I think that sometimes we don't think about where our food comes from. Not just security of food, but, but what processes does it go through? Because actually the purer we can get, the more healthy it is. And, and the work going back to the NRP, uh, we, we now have, have uh, developed a high potential opportunity with the de Department of Trade to actually take what's being done on the NRP out to the world to create some inward investment mm -hmm. because there's a lot of developments that are going on in the food and drink industry, particularly at the moment around plant-based foods. Yeah. Uh, that is a challenge to a traditional farmer with, yeah. with, with hens or pigs or just growing wheat that feed livestock. And that's part of what we call that fourth revolution, which we'll come to in a moment with the, with the uh, vertical farm, that is basically using technology uh, right the way through. It's incredible because I, I'm so blessed that uh, there'll be listeners to this program in America, in India, and in the European Union, who'll be, I think, really, really, in, really, and should be really interested to know and really uh, excited about what's happening here in the east of England and their opportunities to get involved. Because behind you, there's, to my left, there's the condimentum plant, which you might be able to hear just quietly humming away. But there's all this opportunity stretching out around us for people to come and get involved in this in this park. What's the demand like in terms of managing people sort of coming coming in and and, and looking for? space to do to do, to get involved in in the chain well we're 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 in essence just over two years in uh, and and we we will have got um options and and sales on nearly half of the ldo one land we are now working with south norfolk district council to bring forward ldo2 to into the next phase so that'll happen by 2023 and I think the other important thing to, to, to note about the site that we've got here, which, which, is, which is again part of its connectivity, is that we've got an upgrade at A47 that's going just to the north of where we are. And actually this entrance we came into by 2020, end of 24 will be closed and there will yeah. be a new entrance into the site. Um, straight on to the A47, which is dual carriageway links straight to Norfolk. Would, yeah. you, would you consider yourself, you, you say you've re retired in inverted commas, but all the times I've heard you speak over the years to various audiences, you've always presented this really honest, frank, very future-minded, future-proof vision for where agriculture needs to be, for food production needs to be. Would you consider yourself a futurist? I guess the simple answer to that is yes. I'm, I, I guess I'm, I, right the way through my life, have, have, have challenged the norm. Mm -hmm. um, both my grandfathers were dairy farmers. When I started out in the industry, there were 100,000 dairy farmers in the country. Yeah. Uh, you look at now, we're down to six, six and a half thousand. Uh, production uh, in terms of the amount of milk is, is staying relatively the same but, but you know the pressures on the market where people are perceiving that almond milk or soya milk is, is more healthy. If you actually look at the supply chain for something like almond milk, it is frightening in terms of its water use. Right. 
And therefore, we do need to think about the planet, environment. So my world has always been about food, water and the environment. And those are the three building blocks of, 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 of people. And, and it's very di difficult for us to get our minds around some of those things. We glibly talk about net zero and climate change. You'll hear everyone putting them into their presentations. What does it actually mean? How are we actually going to deliver some of those things for the future? What are we doing at the moment to ensure that we can hand this world over to the next generation, to my grandchildren, in, in a way that we would feel comfortable about? Uh, if, I, if I look back on my 70 years in terms of what I've done, uh, massive amounts of fertilizer I remember putting on crops, yeah. right? Uh, pulling out of hedges. There's been a complete reversal of that right now. I, I would estimate that about 10% of Norfolk farmland this year will, will have come out of production to go into environmental schemes. Now, whether that's right or wrong, that is actually government policy. Yes. DEFRA have moved away from a, what's called uh, subsidies on food, mm -hmm. and many listeners won't necessarily <laughs> know that, yeah. but by 2027, they will have disappeared completely. Right. Right. And, and that that funds are going into environmental schemes. Uh, and, and yes, that's absolutely great in terms of what the countryside looked like. But where is our food for the future going to come from? And, and that is something that should exercise all of our minds. Uh, and it was very easy for the government to to say, well, we'll import it. What we're seeing over the last few months yes. is, is actually where on earth are we going to import it from? So I think food security will come more onto the agenda than it has before, mm. but it will be different. And yes, as a futurist, there are some challenges. I, I, am, I am concerned, uh, but uh, if I look to the future, I'm not sure we will have a pig and poultry industry like we've got right now. Yeah. 70% of the landmass that we've got produces crops that feed livestock. And I guess we need to ask ourselves a grown-up question, is that sustainable long-term? Because we are moving to a scenario of plant-based foods, and, and, and although I hate to say it, things like lab meat. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't necessarily be, want to be one that, 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 that eats it, but, but if I look forward, it's quite interesting. If we did a poll of, of a group of people 60 years ago and asked them who smoked, most of them would have put their hands up. Yeah. And yet there we are, a few decades on, if you ask the same question, you'd get only one or two. Yeah. And, and I've seen generational change from that point of view and therefore looking forward, some of the stuff that we, we, you think about actually will, will start to happen. And what it needs are innovative thinkers. My huge thanks to Clark Willis MBE for showing us round the Food Enterprise Park and sharing his encyclopedic knowledge of the agri-food world. But that was just a small sample of a truly fascinating interview. And to hear the full tour of the Food Enterprise Park, go to the Eastern Promise podcast feed on your podcast service of choice and you can find it there. Next week, 
will be staying on the park to visit Condimentum, which is not only continuing a proud history of mustard milling in Norwich, it's elevating it to new heights through the appliance of science. Stay tuned for that one. In October 2022, Eastern Promise got together with Norwich Research Park, Carter Jonas and Ridgen Partners to celebrate the key links between Cambridge and Norwich. To do this, we brought together a mightily impressive mix of scientists, business leaders and professionals from both cities for networking and to record a series of roundtables discussing the scientific, commercial and rail links between Norwich and Cambridge. I began on the platform of Norwich Station, talking to some of those who were about to join us on the trip. Hi, I'm Paul Cracknell, Executive Director of Strategy and Transformation with Norfolk County Council. And what are you looking forward to most about today? I think today is going to be a really exciting day to meet with colleagues, hear about the potential for Norfolk, Cambridge here in our region. Where, where do you think the real strengths are of the relationship between Cambridge and Norwich? I think the strengths between Cambridge and Norwich are obviously proximity. I think there's a, a, an opportunity there that to build on that scale. I think we have common platforms around innovation and academia uh, and some sector opportunities. Uh, and I think we both have that um, opportunity to provide growth uh, within rural counties. Paul, thank you very much. Brian Bush. Hello, what a pleasure to have you with us today. What are you looking forward to about this trip? Uh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Um, I'm looking forward to getting to know Cambridge a little bit better. I know it, but I want to know it a little bit better. I think good collaboration and networking between those two spaces, both of which offer excellent innovation and business opportunities, but in different spheres as well. And I think there's a lot we can learn from each other as well. Well, enjoy the journey. Thank you very much, Thank Brian. Much. Andrew Nightingale, Eastern Academic Health Science Network, Thank you for joining us today. What are you looking forward to from this journey? I'm just looking forward to meeting like-minded people and helping that connection between Norwich and Cambridge. I think it's really important. I think if we can work together, I'm based in Cambridge, and uh, connect with all the people in the Norwich area in science and innovation, I think that's a really important thing. Thank you, and we've also got Mia Serfontaine from the Sainsbury Laboratory. What, what, can I ask you the same question? What are you looking forward to getting out of this trip? Well, I was really excited to see that Roz, the CEO of the Norwich Research Park, was going to be here. So I was very excited to just hang out with people from the Norwich Research Park because I'm quite new to the role and it's been a very collaborative spirit. And I'm curious about the connection between Cambridge and Norwich. Well, I hope we'll, we'll uh, put some meat on the bones for you today. Thank you very much for joining us and I really hope you enjoy it. Now, let's board the train and convene our first round table looking at the rail links between Cambridge and Norwich. We are actually on the train to Cambridge, the 11.27. The day is finally here. Oh my God, I thought it would never come. Um, well, this is our first panel, uh, first round table of, of the journey. We're here with, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Andrew Summers, Director of Transport East. I'm Andrew Holdsworth, Assistant Director for Economy and Growth at Breckland District Council. And I'm Jonathan Denby, and I'm Head of Corporate Affairs for Greater Anglia. And it's your train we're on this morning, Jonathan. Uh, do you want to start by painting, us, uh, painting for us a pen picture? Um, in sound, if you would, uh, of the route and of this service and how it sort of 
how it's come to came to because you have a very personal role in, in making this service happen. Yeah, so sort of over the years and you know rail services evolved and changed and certainly as of the late eighties and nineties it came to pass that there was there was there was no direct train service between Norwich and Cambridge at all. So this corridor felt like a bit of a neglected one rail wise and, and economically. Um, but we started to change all that around 2001-2 when we put together uh, a bid under what was then Anglia Railways to create a new direct service between Norwich and Cambridge with brand new trains. And uh, we succeeded in that bid and so from uh, September 2002 we introduced a brand new hourly Norwich Cambridge service with, with brand new trains. Um, and that's over the years has been a huge success. It's more than realised all the benefits we thought it would deliver. If we look at it initially in terms of passenger numbers, so the first year of that line, there were 380,000 passengers took the train. Uh, of which 40% say they would otherwise have travelled by road. We did research yeah. at the time, so it was, it was actually taking people off the A11 at the time. That was very clear that it was that case. And then over the 20 years, what was 380,000 passengers using that link is now over a million passengers a year. So in that 20 years, it absolutely virtually tripled in yeah. numbers of people using it. And in, and in sort of parallel with that, what we've seen is um, lots of sort of developments economically along the route, sort of, you know, strengthening of the of the collaboration between all the places on the route, so the, the primary places we serve, Wyndham, Athelborough, Thetford, Ely, and then a, from recent years, Cambridge North. There's yes. a new station opened at Cambridge North, which is, which is really helpful because of all the sort of the businesses around there, and Cambridge itself. And then one of the other things that we did sort of in recent years is as part of the, um, uh, the contract that sort of Greater Anglia won in 2016 for running services in this part of the world, um, core part of that bid was replacing every single train in the network yeah. with brand new trains and, one, and by having more trains and brand new ones that's allowed us to then extend the Norwich Cambridge service in, in, in many cases through to, to Stansted so a lot of the trains we run now also go through to Stansted Airport as yeah. well um, and so we've got these wonderful you know, high quality new trains that we're sat on now they're sort of yeah, air conditioned they've got plug points they've got Wi-Fi got tables so yeah, it's a really high quality service effectively sort of like an in-city quality train for a regional route and that's helping to drive growth. So what we've got is now is a really good building block from which to sort of to further develop this route, you know, going on into the future. So more and more people are already using it, which is great. We've got lovely new trains, which is generating even more growth. And that's, that's a, gr a great starting point now as we look ahead from which to sort of to generate even more collaboration and growth from businesses, from academia, from the scientific communities along the route. So when Cambridge South station comes to pass. Will this will this service then stop there as well? It will indeed. Because that really opens up then the biomedical campus, doesn't it? Precisely. And and that that of course is the entire purpose of the Cambridge South station. Yep. It's specifically located right in the heart of all of those uh, facilities there and AstraZeneca have got their worldwide HQ there. So so Cambridge South is going to be a really sort of very sort of convenient stopping point um, for all of those sort of businesses and, and uh, organizations around there. So yes our trains then as soon as that sort of station opens which is expected to be around the sort of the middle of this decade um, that then the, the train these trains that run through to Stansted will stop at Cambridge South on their way through to Stansted Airport. Right Andrew can I ask you to just very briefly introduce Transport East for those who don't who, who may not know uh, who, what you do and and um, I should read what I've written here and I can cut this out this is brilliant and um, you know the, the route we're on is one of Transport East's priority corridors and just introduce yourself and talk to the wider economic importance of this route, as, as Jonathan's kind of 
commented on. Absolutely. Uh, so Transport East is the single voice for transport investment in the east of England. We were formed by our political leaders, our business leaders, uh, across Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, South End and Thurrock. And we work incredibly closely with our, our neighbouring um, subnational transport body, England's Economic Heartland, that covers Cambridgeshire as well. So it's all about partnership, having that single voice for investment. In the past, a lot of fragmented voices across the region doesn't cut through the government in terms of um, making that message comes coming through why we need to invest in the east so this is fundamentally different we've all come together um, the really good news uh, two weeks ago we launched our first regional transport strategy for the east so this partnership has created this case for investment a compelling case for investment the east of england region has a 73 billion pound economy and transport is absolutely fundamental to enabling that now in the strategy we've set out our priority movement corridors, six of them across the east, and this corridor that we're travelling on today is one of those. So Cambridge to Norwich, Cambridge to Ely, but not just that bit within the east of England. We're not seeing ourselves as an island, we connect to the rest of the UK. We help drive a lot of the rest of the UK's economy in, in the east with our, with our powerful uh, sectors, with our ports, um, with our airports. So this is a fundamental movement corridor, so our strategy is looking at how we can help Jonathan and others to really improve the rail services to help people and goods move along this line. Andrew Hogsworth, Breckland Council. Oh, sorry, I'm naming you in full to distinguish you from Andrew Summers. Um, Breckland has the largest number of stations on this line. I mean, what what do you see as, as the benefits coming coming from having those those and it being so easy for people in uh, Attleborough, in Thetford, um, and all those the smaller ones in between to so basically sort of have a very short journey to get on a train and and and, and, and uh, access work leisure in in and we're moving this is we're moving. What's the importance of those stations to the council? It is incredibly important. I, I think. The good thing about this investment is it's not only connecting two big um, endpoints in Norwich and Cambridge, it is all the places in between and all the different communities and, and businesses that that sustains. And the investment that, that Jonathan talked about, it's been incredibly important to sustaining some phenomenal growth locally, but also moving forwards as well. You mentioned two of our, our larger towns there, between them there's 9,000 homes that are being built out at the moment there, which will be transformational in terms of the, the size of um, those um, settlements uh, and also the kind of people we can attract, the kind of businesses that we can attract. And there's a commonality in there that all of them feature at the heart of the town, whether it's kind of the new town or, or, or the old town, a railway station. Um, one of the things we're really, really keen to do is to make sure as, as these towns move forward, we see them as being sort of models of how people want to kind of build and, and, and shape their lives in a kind of post-COVID economy, that the train station is at the heart of that. It sort of defines the urban, urban centre and it defines the way that people can quite easily move around the town but then very easily move move to different jobs and employment one of the things that we're incredibly keen to make sure happens is we, we know there's a phenomenal amount of growth happening in Cambridge at the moment similarly in Norwich but that can be sustained through its links down across the, the, the Cambridge Norwich Tech corridor and there is growth and expansion space possible and it's brilliant to have a rail network that can sustain that whether that's 
commuters coming into spaces to work in Thetford or in Attleborough um, or sort of bigger production facilities that could link in, in bigger sites we've got like Snetterton. Absolutely and um, I think we went, as I said when, when I went to Thetford um, and we did a tour around Thetford we looked at the station and looked at that there's, there's a lot of legacy building there. I mean Wyndham is, a, is an example of where those buildings have been pressed into, into a commercial use but what's the what's the mechanism for unlocking those stations I mean is, is, are they your buildings so they're, 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 they're owned by Network Rail uh -huh. but, but but we as Greater Anglia have them on 99 year full repair and lease basis so um, the op the opportunity is is like like a lot of the things we're talking about today is about is about partnerships so how do you find the sort of the the funding to unlock sort of those those bits of currently underutilized space that have no operational rail role anymore but could potentially be used for other purposes so traditionally sort of nobody has been sort of funded if you like to make use of those redundant spaces network rail haven't the train operator of the day hasn't the local authority hasn't but once you start getting that sort of collaboration towards a common aim of, of something different, potentially you can then unlock funding from particular sources, be that government schemes or, or, or other projects that might, that might come to pass, that then might help repurpose part of the station for a different different use yeah um, and that and that's that's the opportunity sometimes that happens out of its own uh, momentum because you get a, a local business or a local entrepreneur who wants actually to use the, the, yeah. the, 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 the that, that space anyway and approaches us and says oh can we lease it and away you go sometimes that's not the case and so it's then can you find those sources of funding to try and help you make it make it happen speed to unlock in these sites because I think the way we like to look at it is there's a core sort of station envelope which in the ownership of Greater Anglia and, and with a relationship with Network Rail there's then what happens around it so in the context of Deptford we're looking at potential redevelopment of, of associated sites which are either in other parts of public sector ownership or private ownership and then there's how it all connects in how it connects into the road network and how it connects into the walking and cycling network um, and we're really pleased in, in fact so we're looking at some potential joint master planning with um, um, with Greater Anglia at the moment around a much bigger vision yeah. for that whole station size. Yeah, just I mean, coming on that yeah, that transport yeah. connectivity point, it's absolutely fundamental. There is effective uh, interchange at these stations. Um, if we are to achieve things like our decarbonisation objectives and it attracts people onto the railways as opposed to continuing to use private car, for example, for some of their, their trips, um, some of the barriers, and we did a survey of about 600 people in our strategy, we asked people in, in the east, you know, what are the key things you think about when you make your trips? And it's about reliability, it's convenience. So the ability for them to be, as, uh, as Andrew said, to get the bus to the station, quick interchange onto the train, active travel routes, for example, or if, if they're out at, no, good car parking. So really good connectivity to get to the train station is fundamental. The other element of that is it adds to the business case for the, the rail investment in the first place. Look at Crossrail. A huge amount of those business case um, benefits were from those wider areas around those stations that had greater accessibility. And that's the sort of thinking we need to bring together here, the partnership work on business cases to really make that, that value for money case for investment. I mean, if you look at just turning from from uh, legacy stations to, to, to newer ones, we covered Cambridge North and Cambridge South briefly. And if you look at the the, the, the interchange, the entries and exits for Cambridge North, an explosion. It's like nearly pre-pandemic, it nearly doubled. Uh, so that's amazing. I mean, could, 
you guys are obviously going to be no much better than I. What's the mechanism? And they're talking about Broadland uh, Park as a, as, a, as a station. I know it's been going on for some time now, but what's the mechanism for new stations? I mean, what's the and the time frame for sort of setting that up? I mean, I, it, like a lot of these things, it, 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 it depends on collaboration and partnership. I know that sounds a bit like obvious, but but, but that that's what it amounts to. So so what you need is that is to build a business case. You need to have somebody who's going to be in a position to fund it. So all, all of these station schemes. So train operators t are generally running contracts of five to ten years currently under the current way the structure works. So actually, the, for the train operator themselves they're not going to see the return from that investment over the period of, of their contract. So actually what you need is sort of like the long-term vision bit where you can get secure funding from other sources, be that a regional organisation or a government sort of, uh, a government sort of funding scheme um, that allows you to take into account the long-term benefits, the wider benefits of those stations, the agglomeration benefits that Andrew was just talking about. And if you get that together, then you can build a business case for, for actually doing the station investment and that and we we can we can help with that in that we can help towards the business case and we can do the transport uh, service modeling we can help show what sort of demand you might see if you then put the station in we can we can actually be active players even though even though we may not have that we will not be able to provide the, the funding grant to do it we can be key agents in helping to make the case and working with others to then get these things over the line and this is where I want to talk about the rail plan that the region is about to embark on so we've as a region have looked rather enviously at the north and the midlands in terms of the integrated rail plan that they've developed over you know over a decade but have secured 96 billion pounds worth of investment in that in the east we are now going through that same process as I mentioned earlier there has been quite a fragmented approach to, to rail development in the east. We are bringing that together into a single rail plan. We're working with Jonathan, um, we're working with Network Rail, Government, all of our partners um, to create a single rail plan with a vision in terms of the outputs that we want the network to deliver, the economic benefits we want it to deliver, um, the environmental benefits we want it to deliver. Um, Government has funded us to do this um, yeah. over the next year um, and we're going to be having a round table in Parliament in November um, with Jonathan and others and our leading MPs to get that up and running. But I think it's that, that, it's that partnership approach that has to get it over the line. We can't do this individually. No strangers to a round table in Parliament. Jonathan. And just to bear that out, so we're sat on here fantastic new train. It's transformed the quality of service on this route, transformed the capacity, transformed the sort of the punctuality. You know, we, we, what we've got now is a fantastic rail service. We have never ever in the history of the railways in the east before ever had a complete replacement of the entire fleet. It's never happened. It's happening now, yeah. and we're getting, and we're, we're most of the way through it. By this time next year, our entire network, including the bits in the south, which are the last part of the transition, will have entirely new train fleet. But the only reason that is there is that from 2012 onwards, a number of us, of which Greater Anglia was at the heart, but, but a number of us got together to bat together for the eastern region. That hadn't happened before. Yeah. It had happened in the north. Uh, it hadn't happened. We'd seen what was going on, and myself and some of the MPs and the LEPs and the local authorities, we all got together, collaborated and said, right, come on, it's our turn. It's really important. We're going to back together consistently to government. And, and, and all of us did that consistently over a period of time, Chambers of Commerce, LEPs, local authorities and, and others, uh, pushing, 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 making the case to government, which then meant that in 2014-15, when they were letting the contract for, for the train services in East Anglia, DFT and government, because they had it 
put at them through every channel, not just at EFT but the Treasury video, were then clear that sort of rolling stock and new trains was absolutely fundamental for our region. And so it was then placed as a higher priority in the contract. Bidders then bid against that. They then they put in, got more competitive bids. You got better value because new, new sort of um, manufacturers and others were getting in, sort of thinking, "Oh, there's an opportunity here." So therefore, when Abellio, who were our parent company anyway, then saw that, they put in an ambitious bid that said, "Actually, no, we'll replace everything," and made that strong case to government. And because government then saw one, it was a strong case, and two, they were still getting all the way through the process. Everybody in the region, just as Andrew said, saying, "Come on, it's our turn." And there's an economic case here, we ended up with this fantastic outcome. Yeah. And so it just underpins that sort of Andrew's point about that collaboration. Now, we were doing that then, having to try to, a number of us work together to try and collaborate and, and, and speak as a common voice. We didn't have a subnational transport body at that point. We do now, which is great. So that gives us extra sort of voice to, to put across. And it's worth remembering this provides solutions to the government as well in terms of some of their major national challenges so post-brexit international trade well in the east of england over half of the uk's freight containers come through our ports um, serving industries in the north in the midlands in london we are that gateway region um, but we don't have the, the rail network currently to reflect that role um, if we deliver, for example, the Ely scheme, it gets thousands of, of freight uh, lorries off the A14, saving millions of tonnes of, of carbon, helps the net zero agenda. So there's so many things we're trying to push here that are in line and will support government objectives. And it's Absolutely. that approach. I think that's really important. You've got to make those connections between where the government wants to go and what you can offer, because I think that's, that's the way, in my experience, that you, you, you get those results, you, you draw those lines and you say, we can deliver your agenda and this is how we're going to do it. I thought, and this isn't just limited to transport, but I think it absolutely applies, but I think one of the key challenges we have, and have had historically, is long-term infrastructure planning is incredibly difficult. It is, the temptation always is to look at fairly narrow time horizons, to look at a five-year business plan to be funded. But I think the thing we can't accept is to put in two difficult ones because we have to plan for housing growth, for employment growth yeah. over a 40-year time horizon. But to do that effectively, you need to be able to put in the infrastructure in advance and need to know properly about what, what rail requirements will look like. And the great thing we have here is, is we have seen, we have evidence, and we're sat on it, the success of having a really successful Norwich to Cambridge train service. Yes. So, so we are coming from something that says, look, if you invest on it, in it, this is what you will get. We have had 20 years of success on this route, starting off with two brand new two-carriage trains, really successful. Yeah. By 2010, we're at a point where we had to swap those for three-carriage trains because it was being so successful and then when, we were, when, the, when the contract was let again in the middle of the last decade we then we've got new trains and now we're on lovely four, four carriage trains and so what, what that allows us to do with government is to say oh not not just say oh well you need to invest in us because actually we've been we've, you know we, we, we've not had our fair share actually we, 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 you need to invest in us because actually you can see the evidence here yeah, that when exactly. you do that exactly. this is what it gives so if you invest even more there's opportunities to do even more so you know for example you know we've got a great hourly service that is, that is brilliant but in the future if you're going to get even more people off the a11 even more people sort of you know using rail instead of road actually the vision would be you'd want to go to a half hourly service yeah. but to do that you need to unlock Ely as Andrew's already mentioned and you'd need to unlock the sort of the trans swing bridge at, at, at Norwich because yeah. those are 
current constraints, which without which, if you don't if you don't sort of modify those and create extra capacity, you couldn't run a half-hourly service. So yeah. it's those sort of things where again that collaboration of that vision is about then creating the infrastructure that allows us to do even more. Well, we've just arrived at Wyndham, where, but we will we will, we will we will not change anything around at this point. We're gonna we're gonna continue now. Um, East West Rail. Andrew, where, where, where does that stand? Because I've, I, I was re trying to read around it and it, it's interesting trying to get to the bottom of where that stands, especially Grant Shapp's comments during the Conservative leadership campaign. Where is that current, currently, and in particular the extension of that sort of beyond, beyond Cambridge to the east? Yep. So in the, the Prime Minister's recent growth plan, East West Rail was mentioned in, in the plan as a scheme they want to progress. I guess the, the question is what elements of that are described in the plan um, and we, we, we need further detail on that. From the East's perspective, Transport East has created um, an Eastern Board of East West Rail, so chaired by uh, Councillor Alexander Nicholl of, of Suffolk um, and members of that board include Jonathan and Transport East and all of the, the local authority politicians along that route. Our goal is to make sure we make the case for the eastern section of East West Rail. Now we are supportive of all the work taking place in the central section because we want the connectivity to the rest of the country. Imagine through services from Norwich and Ipswich through Cambridge and then beyond um, into, into Oxford and the West Country. It allows this corridor to grow. It allows people to be attracted to live on the corridor and use rail as, as, as that key point. So we are advocating hard and as part of the, the rail plan that I talked about, that east-west connectivity will be absolutely fundamental. But we need the central section um, between Bletchley and Cambridge to be delivered. We need Cambridge South to be able to accommodate through services as well. Um, but we are pushing hard on that. But then when we get to the eastern section, we need our trains to be able to run quickly along this route that we're on now mm -hmm. from Norwich through to Cambridge. Cambridge to provide high quality um, long distance services. And what, and what, and what, you, what we need to try and do is, is, is sort of make sure that sort of for both Cambridge Norwich and Cambridge Ipswich you then put in the infrastructure that allows you to run a more frequent service mm -hmm. um, and, and that underpins everything. So if you can get the infrastructure and also the collaboration to then make sure that we can get the sort of the, the government support to allow whoever's running the contract to run half hourly trains in the future because obviously you need extra trains to do that and you need to, to, to uh, make sure that that was uh, costed into the operation of the contract. Um, but you, but if you get to, if the other thing is if you get to half hourly you're in such a strong position because whilst clearly our our vision would be is to try and get some some direct services through from the east-west through right to, all the way through to Ipswich and all the way through to Norwich without changing. If you've got a level of frequency that's between our core regional sort of hubs in terms of Norwich, Ipswich, Cambridge, that's half hourly. Obviously, we've already got it between Norwich and Ipswich now. But if you've got it from, from from Norwich to Cambridge and Ipswich to Cambridge, that means that even if the core of the east-west rail service ended up being Cambridge to Oxford, if you've got half hourly trains from Ipswich to Norwich, yeah. as soon as you as soon as you get to Cambridge, you've got half any time to, to wait to, to change even Absolutely. if you are changing yeah. so, so you get you get that huge amount of connectivity so almost like you 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 have the vision to like to get the core stuff in first and then try and add in whatever you can with some with some through trains around the edges as well but you get a lot of the benefits just from that that frequency element makes a huge difference to people's
propensity to use the train. You know, every time you sort of increase frequency, you suddenly draw in a whole set of people. Even, even yeah. on your most, I mean, these aren't our most rural routes, but even on our most rural routes, like East Suffolk Line or Norwich Sheringham, once you get over a core threshold of frequency, suddenly a whole set of people who before were just have gone, oh, I'm not so sure, rail's not convenient enough for me, I can't, I can't yeah, exactly. risk, risk being stuck waiting around for an hour and a half. Once you get over hourly and on some routes or half hourly on others, suddenly you're drawing a whole set of extra people who find, then find rail services convenient and they'll use it and they'll change their behaviours as a result. Right, I'm just checking where we are. Are we, are we, we all right? Yeah, yeah. Do you know how often we are, far we are from Attleborough now? Oh, probably uh, within the next five minutes. Okay, so, um, well, I mean, just just very quickly, um, in terms of ticketing, I, I, I looked at a study called from McKinsey that said uh, three horizons to boost rail modal share, uh, restore travel to pre-COVID levels. I don't think I think you've probably considered that actually. Um, grow passenger rail by better operations again, uh, but it talks about ticketing and mobility as a service applications. What work are you doing? Just very briefly, because we've got to sort of switch to the next one. But what work are you doing in terms of? Improving like one single ticket in terms of accessing transport in Cambridge, transport in Norwich. So, so the, I think there's a, there's a number of things we're doing in the industry to try and improve ticketing. One sort of to, to um, so on the one hand, sort of um, people want simplicity, but they also want fares and tickets that suit their individual journeys. So there's an interesting balance there about how much simplicity you have versus how much um, variety of fares that suit people with very differing needs. So we're trying to get that balance right. So for example, in the last uh, 18 months, industry has put in a new flexible season ticket. So that again, for people who aren't traveling in five days a week, that's a more flexible option. And that's, again, that, I think that's just the start of us as an industry moving towards more varied ticketing. There's many more tickets already that you can get on as smart ticketing, which again, is it easier, more tickets you can buy on your phone. I think, I think where we need to be going, and this is about, again, collaboration, vision, working with government, if you like, is we need to sort of get the, the funding framework behind it mm -hmm. in a position that allows you to do more of that straightforward, just being able to add it on, 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 on a car type thing, that sort of single ticket, and also more of the, 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 those those sort of integrated approaches like you've got say in some of the big urban areas already yeah. in London where a bit like you know, the Oyster example for example where, you've, where you then have one ticket that gets you on rail, bus, the convenience element is something that definitely drives usage even sometimes if actually you know the pricing has gone up slightly with it so in London some of the Oyster pricing did go up a bit but actually the sheer convenience of that inter-available ticket just meant you got this real growth in usage. Well. Andrew Summers, Transport East. Andrew Holds with Breckland Council and Jonathan Denby, Greater Angler. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. Please do enjoy the rest of the day. My huge thanks to Jonathan Denby, Head of Corporate Affairs at Greater Anglia, to Andrew Summers, Strategic Director at Transport East, and Andrew Holdsworth, Assistant Director for Development and Growth at Breckland Council. Next week, we'll be looking at the commercial links between Norwich and Cambridge with Nova Fairbank, Chief Executive of Norfolk Chambers of Commerce, William Rook, partner in Carter Jonas at Cambridge, and Nigel Cushion, Chief Executive Officer of Nelson Spirit. Please do join me again for that. And now... Yeah, what can I get you, mate?
I'm looking for a good night out in the east of England. Sorry? I'm looking for a good night out in the east of England. Oh, I didn't get that, mate. I'm looking for a good night out in the east of England! Oh, right. Try this, mate. What is it? Crowd sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Where would we be without this weekly wander into whimsy? Well, we'd be wondering where to spend a big night out. Thankfully, we have our collective of crowd sorcerers to work their magic for you. The first to incantate their alchemical magic is Simon Blackwell, founder of Hemp Innovations Limited, who suggests the tipsy vegan bistro for dinner, then the ten bells on St Benedict's in Norwich for an old-fashioned. Perfect, says Simon. Let's stay on St Benedict Street in Norwich for a recommendation from Ted Leggett, culture and events officer at Norwich City Council, who says that, when budget allows, a night at Benedict's is probably the best thing you can do with your mouth. So for any dentists listening, you can find Ted at City Hall in Norwich and take it up with him. Another suggestion that's good for the Norwich economy and your street cred, if not your waistline or your bank balance, comes from Gemma Hoskins, development manager at the Norfolk and Norwich Festival. Rooting for l'équipe locale, Gemma says, my vote is for dinner at Le Hexagon. Hexagonbistrofrancais.com. Très bon. Merci, Gemma. Meanwhile, Catherine Morris Gretton, communications lead for Norwich City Council, says, Nights out are a bit of a rarity now, but I've had some superb meals in Norwich at places like Bonoli, Yard, Haggle, Jive Kitchen and Farmyard. Like Catherine, we love the fact that you can head out after work and have so many top quality choices within walking distance. It sure beats spending an hour on the tube to meet friends. Indeed. Having sated the stomach, let's now bless the ears and kick things up a notch with James Lee Burgess, augmented reality expert and Digital Poverty Alliance ambassador, who invites us to sample the Norwich Arts Centre and, more specifically, Electronica Music Night Hark, which JLB shall be attending three times in the next two months, with Helena Rice, Sunder Ark, brackets Norwich Bleep Gods, and rival consoles. Didn't understand any of that, but it sounds very positive to me. Ted Leggett is clearly another electronica aficionado and can't wait, he says, for the aforementioned electronic and AR artist Helena Rice. The visuals, says Ted, look incredible. If you're going there, you'll be sure to bump into James Lee Burgess and Ted Leggett. Meanwhile, a wild night at Blue Joanna on Norwich's Unthank Road is the recommendation of genial gentleman of business Brian Bush. Especially, says Brian, when Robert Ebbage is on the tunes. Or, says Brian, anything live and local, the last one being Chris Sargison at the Louis Marchese on Tombland in Norwich. Uh, speaking of the CEO of Disson Thetford Citizens Advice, the aforementioned Chris Sargison was recently the subject of an increasingly relaxed interview on this very podcast from the Unthank Arms again in Norwich. Here, Chris recommends you start a Saturday worthy of the name with cocktails at Hawthorne, then dinner at Farmyard, a noisy covers band in a sweaty pub somewhere, the smaller the better, followed by a late-night dub-slash-reggae session at the Waterfront or Norwich Arts Centre. Furthermore, a 
According to Chris, a good corresponding Sunday recovery means a pick-me-up breakfast at Cafe 33, followed by a huge coastal dog walk. Now, I'm assuming it's the walk that's huge, and not the coastal dog, because that'd be like... Direct from Disco 2000 is David Powells, Norfolk champion, journalist of good standing, former editor of the EDP, and the subject of a future interview on this very podcast. Yeah. David offers us this. Am I allowed to say my own, Mike Rigby? Which is the Common People 90s Nights. Look them up on commonpeoplenorwich.com. I'm ashamed to say that I, like David, am of a certain vintage where that all makes perfect sense. I spent many a Thursday evening at Shipwrecked, at Nottingham Trent University's Clifton campus, but that's a story for another region. Otherwise, says David, it has to be the joy of discovering a new and up-and-coming band at Norwich Arts Centre, or singing and dancing along to your favourite tunes at the Waterfront, UEA or Epic. And after that little diversion, let's leap back onto the train to Cambridge at the invitation of Anthony Quinn, co-founder at The Communication Practice, who recently appeared in episode 37 when we visited Idea Space. Anthony suggests Club Urania at Cambridge Junction and Polyphonic, an annual festival of music and sound at the striking Wising Arts Centre near Bourne. Club Urania, I have to say, looks like a turbocharged, nitroglycerin-based, sweaty jelly night out. So let's take things down a notch, shall we? Don our favourite turtleneck sweaters read some French poetry and chill out to the rhythmic beat of George Double at either or both of Hadley Jazz Club or Southwold Jazz Club. These being the recommendations of Suffolk's heppiest cat, Tim Robinson, who is also Chief Operating Officer of Tech East. More info on George Double at www.georgedouble.com and more information indeed on Tim Robinson at www.techeast.com But champion of the last-minute plug is Joe Ferris, engagement specialist at the New Anglia Growth Hub. Joe proclaims proudly that this coming Saturday, that's the 15th of October 2022, it must be, it has to be a trip to the Oktoberfest with Umpar Band at Beach Street Felixstowe and a Sunday morning with the Felixstowe Rowing Club to clear the head. Find out more information on Oktoberfest at www.beachstreetfelixstowe.co.uk forward slash events and you can see Oktoberfest there. So there you have it. A weekend of thrills, occasionally spills, jazz, cabaret, an oompa band on the Suffolk coast. What's not to love? Get out there, you crazy kids, and paint the town whichever water-soluble colour you fancy. And on that note, it only fails for me to A, calm down, and B, thank the legend that is Clark Willis MBE for showing us around the Food Enterprise Park at Honingham. The omnibus edition of Eastern Promise this week has an abridged version of the tour. If you want to hear the tour in full, you can find that in your Eastern Promise podcast feed or go to www.easternpromise.podbean.com. That's bean as in coffee bean. So, to Jonathan Denby of Greater Anglia, 
Transport East's Andrew Summers and Breckland Council's Andrew Holdsworth. Thank you so much for taking part in the first of three rail panels to mark Eastern Promise's first anniversary. There'll be more to come next week when it's the turn of the business panel. Well, that's about all we've got time for for episode 39. Join us next week for episode 40. So thank you to Engineer 49 for that smooth journey and for all his help. Meeting Engineer 49 is a bit like the ending of The Mousetrap. You get sworn to secrecy. But thank you to him for all his help. The rail panel, quite literally, would have been impossible without him. Thank you to, to Ros Bird of Anglia Innovation Partnership. Thank you to, to Ros Bird of Anglia Innovation Partnership. To William Rook and Carter Jonas for being such fabulous hosts of our little train crew. To Mark Richards, Claire Richards, Liz Sparrow and Matthew Sumpter and all at Ridgeon Partners for so generously sponsoring our train travel. Thank you to Lucy Wright of Greater Anglia for taking such brilliant care of us on the train. And most of all, thank you to you for listening. If you have any comments or you want to know anything more about the show, you can find me, Mike Rigby, on LinkedIn. You can find Eastern Promise on LinkedIn. Or drop me a line at host at easternpromise.site. I really would love to hear from you. So, I look forward to having your company again next time. But until then, bye for now.